My name is Matt Duplessis. Can you believe tomorrow is 2024? Every New Year's Eve, I hope for a good show in Times Square, and every year they drop the ball. We warm now? You ready for this? I won't do too many more of those. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? Anybody do that? It's a funny thing, right, that we take a specific time of the year to make changes, but it's as good a time as any, I guess, and better to be intentional than never assess or decide to make any changes, right? At the beginning of last year, I resolved to lose 10 pounds. I'm doing great, I only have 15 to go. Roughly 37% last year of Americans said they had a goal or a New Year's resolution that they wanted to achieve in 23. This was a poll conducted at the end of 2022, and the most popular resolutions involved diet and exercise and personal finances. No surprises there, I think. The average resolution seems to have stuck for about three and a half months. Many don't make it quite that long, A lot of news sites have actually called the first, uh, second, and third Fridays of the month of January as Quitter's Day. They make it two weeks, three weeks before the resolution fails. This morning, on the eve of a new year, we're going to talk about an area for self-evaluation and a resolution that you may judge is worth sticking with. So open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 4. Pastor Pete gave me this passage to speak on this morning, and it's great because I love Proverbs. It's my personal favorite book of the Bible. Since my eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Morrison, went into such depth, it's been in my head ever since. You can dive in and out of almost any verse and find a pithy, directly applicable wisdom for life. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, one for each day of the month. So if you want an easy and enjoyable resolution just for the month of January, Consider reading each day the chapter that corresponds to the date, one chapter for each of the 31 days, and you will end the month a little bit wiser. It's worth the time. Proverbs 4, read with me, starting in verse 23, Proverbs 4. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. There's a lot of godly wisdom that we can unpack in these five verses on this New Year's Eve. So first, to begin, the overarching defining statement of this passage is the first sentence. Above all else, Guard your heart. Now we know that when it says heart, metaphorically, the author, King Solomon, is speaking about what we today would call our mind, our inner self. How do we know that? How do we know that's what it means? Let's look at a couple of other uses of the word heart in Scripture. For example, in Matthew 9, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Or the Apostle Paul prayed, Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We're commanded to trust the Lord with all our heart, to hide God's word in our heart. The prophet Samuel told us that God does not judge by outward appearance, but looks at the heart. 
And Proverbs 23 says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In various passages, the heart can be grieved or troubled or broken or pierced or divided or joyful. So our heart in scripture is the true expression of how we think, what makes us tick, not who we present ourselves to be on the outside, but who we really are. And verse 23 is the headline of this passage. We're going to see, I think, in a minute that the other verses kind of fall under and reinforce this headline of the passage. The verse says, guard your heart. And the word guard here, that essence of self, that inner reality of who we really are and how we think. The word guard here is the Hebrew word natsar. It means to preserve, to continually watch over, even to blockade defensively. The context of the word is like a soldier who's always on call, continuously on watch duty, vigilant, keeping out what is bad and dangerous, repelling evil from coming in, keeping that which is good from being stolen, and continuously watching over, defending who we are in our heart of hearts. In the world today, it's particularly easy, I think, to avoid discernment when it comes to looking at our own heart. We're moving a mile a minute. We're completely surrounded by fast-paced distractions. We go from hectic work to never-ending social commitments to the ultimate enemy of deep reflection and introspection, your cell phone. We fail to even take the thoughtful time to discriminate between what is good and what is evil because we're simply living day to day on what feels right or even worse, what feels good. We guard our property with locks and security cameras, but we let down the guard of our own soul. We scrutinize our financial assets, our checking account, our 401k, and we never spend a moment considering our thought life. We obsess over politics, personalities, dwelling on it, arguing about it, and don't give attention to the ultimate source of leadership and truth. We spend more time watching what we eat, the number one New Year's resolution, than we do watching our spirit, the thing that's actually gonna last. Spiritual discernment is the process of making intentional distinctions in the way we think, how we evaluate what's true and what's false, assessing where we really stand, not lying to ourselves about the ground truth inside. So this morning, I'd like to offer a couple of tools for running your very own spiritual EKG test. An electrocardiogram records the electric signal from the heart to check on different heart conditions. When I signed up for life insurance, the insurance company sent a nurse to my house with an EKG machine and hooked it up to my heart, probably to make sure I wasn't on death's door trying to cash in for my wife. So we're gonna take a moment this morning to check for some different heart conditions together. Is there a hardening when it should be soft? Are you out of rhythm? Or are your spiritual disciplines rhythmic and dependable? Are you running too fast, going a mile a minute? Or are you running too slow and drifting, lethargic? As a person thinks in their heart, this is who they are. So the verse, the headline reads, above all else, guard your heart. And the verse goes on, depending on your translation, it would say, for everything you do flows from it, or out of it flows the issues of life, or the springs of life, the wellspring of life, depending what version you're reading. 
meaning that the water that metaphorically comes out of a person, the way we speak, the way we act, reflects the purity of their well, the internal reservoir in their wellspring of life, your heart. In 1848, London was hit with a massive epidemic of cholera. People were literally dying in the streets. And back then in the 1800s, it was unclear why. Panic was widespread. People would lock themselves away in their homes. They'd avoid others, but they would still get sick and die. So a doctor back then, Dr. John Snow, studied the deaths of 89 people in a short period of time in one area of London to try to isolate the cause of the disease. And he realized one thing that all 89 had in common. The victims had each drank from the same well on Broad Street. During an emergency meeting of the leaders of London, Dr. Snow was asked, what should be done? What can be done to stop this epidemic? And he said, take the handle off the Broad Street pump. So they took the handle off and the epidemic in that quarter ended. The ultimate solution, of course, was to stop the sewage from leaking into the well stopping cholera from spreading, and once again providing pure and clean drinking water. The purity of your water supply, the wellspring of your heart, matters in the same way. So let's look this morning. If we take a glass of raw sewage, yeah, good reaction. <laughs> I open this at some risk, and we stir in a spoonful of fresh, clean, purified ice water. What do we have? Sewage. <laughs> but if we take a fresh, clean vessel of, of ice water and we stir in a spoonful of sewage, uh-oh, I dropped the spoon. <laughs> we'll get that later. What do we have? Sewage. One tablespoon goes a long way. So it is with sin seeping into your well. So it was with cholera back in London in the 1800s. This is why you can't earn your way to heaven, right? If you think about this for a minute, we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Once you have a scoop of sewage in your well, you're no longer pure and clean in God's sight. There's the actual clean one, lest I forget. We know that the wages of sin is death in whatever ratio. It doesn't matter how good you think you usually are. One scoop of poop gives you cholera. Another example, perhaps you've heard the expression, one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Is that actually true? I mean, is that, is that a saying or is that science? It's true. Here's an excerpt from an article at McGill University. Once an apple is rotten or has physical damage, like a bruise, it starts to produce ethylene, which in turn leads to increased internal temperature, causing a breakdown of chlorophyll, a synthesis of other pigments, other colors. The starch of the fruit is converted to simple sugars and pectin at the same time, a component of the fiber that cements the cell walls together begins to disintegrate and the tissue, the flesh on the outside of that apple softens. And once this happens, it starts a chain reaction, stimulating the process in other nearby apples. 
The ripening or spoiling is usually undesired, but the article told me something I didn't know. Of course, unless you want to ripen bananas. Put a green banana in a bag with a ripe cut up apple and watch what happens. The banana will turn yellow. The ripening process is even carried out commercially where easily perishable and long distance traveling produce like bananas and tomatoes are picked before they're ripe and then they're treated with ethylene gas in the truck on the route to their destination to ripen them. There you go, new fact for the day. So what's the point here? One spoonful of sewage spoils the glass. One rotten apple spoils the barrel. One influence on your heart, one filthy attitude or behavior or mindset, one thing that comes out of your mouth or into your eyes has a disproportionate effect on who you are. A sinner only needs one sin to be guilty. And Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. The price that must be paid for even one sin is death. So unless you acknowledge and accept the free gift, the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sin and mine to cleanse that well and make it pure. That's the only option. And then after, after we've accepted Jesus, as an act of obedience, we're called to be vigilant. That's where this passage comes into play. It's not the vigilance that saves us, Rather, the guarding of our hearts, not letting ungodly thoughts leak into our mind or that rot begin to set in, is an act of obedience. In this short passage, we're given three tools to do that, to guard our hearts as we keep reading. It gives us three gauges, three safety checks, three self-assessments for us to evaluate the actual heart health we have this morning. The passage tells us to look at our mouth, our eyes, and our feet. When you drove here this morning, how did you know you were driving the right speed? How did you know you had enough gas? How did you know your engine wasn't overheating and the speed of your cylinders was in the right range? Drivers, you looked at your dashboard. You checked the gauges and they could tell you at a glance if everything was running as it should be or if there was trouble brewing under the hood. What would a dashboard for your heart look like this morning? Let's look at these three gauges that the passage lays out, three ways to understand the state of our heart, if we're willing to take an honest look inside this morning with the Spirit's help. So the first hard one, perhaps, for me, is your mouth. The first gauge, the first indicator that we can self-evaluate by, take a job interview as an example. You can learn a lot about someone's heart and mind by what they say. You can sometimes tell in a couple of moments if the individual across the table from you is the last person you'd wanna work alongside eight hours a day. What comes out of their mouth is just poisonous or arrogant or bitter or lazy. Matthew 12, Jesus himself tells us, he's talking to the Pharisees, professionals of self-delusion, and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Wow, every empty word. That makes me want to keep my mouth shut a lot more. 
Take a moment, let's look inside at our dashboard, and what does your mouth meter, your tongue tester, your gab gauge read this week? Are you at truth and clarity, or do you find lies and deception seeping in? Do you speak with joy and encouragement, or is there a bitterness, a jadedness in your conversation? Are you respectful and edifying, or do you enjoy the sarcasm, the mockery, the insults? Is there humility and a spirit of helpfulness or pride and arrogance? Patience and understanding, is that your default? Or are you quick, short, quick to anger? Are you discreet or a slanderer, a gossip, a bearer of tales? Are you clean and pure in your choice of words or is there cursing and dirty talk? How do you evaluate your tongue this week? And importantly, recognize that this is not about balance. We're not trying to get to the 50-50 mark on the gauge, right? This is not about the good outweighing the bad, where if I'm 51% good speech, then then I win the race. We know that one spoonful of raw sewage ruins a whole lot of water. Proverbs 18 tells us in verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. The King James translation of our Proverbs 4 passage, for those brought up in, a, in the old ways, at Christian school and is, as a young kid, talks about putting away a froward mouth. A froward mouth, that is speech that is fraudulent or deceitful, twisting, distorting, perverting, misrepresenting. It says, put away perverse lips, avoiding coarse talk. If you wouldn't say it in front of your grandma, don't say it at all. Well, I don't know your grandma. Maybe that's not a good example in your family. If God were in the room, what would you be comfortable saying? Because God is here. James 3 reads, starting in verse 3, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. A whole lot of this discipline with our mouths comes down to two things, speed and direction. Slowing down our replies before speaking. Maybe we've probably all heard of the count to 10 method, right? What we teach angry little children before they interact with their brother or their sister. It sounds infantile. But Proverbs backs up this truth. It says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. How many times this week have I replied almost flippantly 
without considering the implications. Perhaps you want to resolve this year to train yourself to take an additional second, one, before opening your mouth to consider more fully, more fully and save yourself and others from foolish, unnecessary problems. And as for direction for content of our speech, Eleanor Roosevelt said, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. While this is not scripture, I think there's some wisdom in this. Is your default conversation this week talking about your neighbor or your acquaintance and what foolish thing they've done now? Listen, we could talk for the rest of the sermon about the tongue, or if you're like me, it could be a series. (laughs) But instead of looking at our mouths exhaustively, the observation I would like you to take away from this is this. What comes out of your mouth is a speedometer revealing your heart's condition. It's one of the gauges that through the Holy Spirit, you, or maybe a trusted friend, or a mentor, an accountability partner, can use to quickly look at your EKG. Is your heart where it should be? A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Next to that speedometer, there's an RPM gauge. Our second, our second gauge, we're going to talk about our eyes for a minute. Our mouth is a mechanism for outward expression, right? But our eyes, we take in information. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You, you, you might be thinking, we know what goes into a person doesn't make him guilty. It's what comes out, right? Bacon got the thumbs up, praise God. Mark 7 reads, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So then, if it's what comes out of a person that makes them guilty, why does it matter what I look at? What my eyes spend time on reflects what I love. What I spend time watching reflects the desires of my heart. Your eyes, your focus, your attention are one of the biggest gauges of your heart's health. If I spend hours at a time absorbing the news or some great sports or TV shows or politics or cat videos, but I've never seemed to have time to read my Bible, that reflects what I love. It's a gauge of what I actually desire, not what I say I desire. It's easier than ever with the phone in your pocket to get caught in an endless loop. Videos, games, text, doom scrolling through the latest news. 2024 is an election year. We're all gonna get up to our eyeballs in drama if we let ourselves fixate on it. Control your eyes, church. Be discerning. Make sure you take the time to focus on what is actually important lasting and true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Resolve this year to make the time for these things. We can all do just fine with a few less minutes on Facebook and Instagram. 
And the temptations of our eyes aren't just a distraction, causing weak-willed, undisciplined humans like me to waste their lives on what doesn't matter. It's worse. It's worse than that because our eyes are also the gateway to our actions. We look at a path first, and then we walk down it. We start to get comfortable with sin from a distance, desensitized before stepping over the line. We start spending time looking, and the doing follows. Satan's strategy in the Garden of Eden was first to get Eve to just look at the forbidden fruit. No harm in just checking it out, right? Seeing what the big deal is all about. But the more she looked, the sweeter, the more desirable the fruit became in her mind. And what happened? She began to lose focus. She lost the greater context. She forgot or perhaps rationalized about God's warning of certain judgment and the look became lust. Genesis 3 verse 6 reads, And when the women saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. In contrast, our passage in Proverbs 4 says, Let your eyes look straight. Fix your gaze directly before you. The instruction is both to look at the right things and to only look at the right things. The picture it conjures for me is one of a horse with blinders on, right? Staying focused ahead, only looking at the road, the straight and narrow, not being distracted by that squirrel, but allowing us to focus and not be tempted, or as Psalms warns us in several places, envying the wicked and the lost. All right, so a moment to self-reflect. A few seconds of silence together. This is difficult. This is tough. Introspection, self-awareness can sting a little bit. So let's think just of this last week. What are the things you spent the most time focused on with your eyes? What were the top handful of things that you spent the most time looking at? What does that say about your heart? What does that say about your priorities and passions? What does it say about what you love? In the week ahead, in the year ahead, is there something you would change about the mix of time that you're spending looking at different things? What would your, how would your focus change? when you stop to think about it? What would you dif do differently with your eyes in 2024? The beautiful and timeless hymn written 101 years ago now says, O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our last spiritual gauge, the third to look at this morning, is our feet. Where we actually go, what we actually do. Give careful thought, our passage in Proverbs 4 says, give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left, but keep your foot from evil. 
give careful thought, or in another translation it says, ponder your paths, weigh and consider the ramifications, the consequences of the direction you choose. The implication is that we think ahead, we map out in our mind's eye, well, if I go there and I do that, then I should expect this to happen. Every time you drive, how many of you, like me nowadays, are frequently using a map on your phone or on a screen in your car? For any long or significant drive, people use these tools today. It used to be done like this, if you recall. How many of you can read one of those now? Or heaven forbid you actually had to walk into one of these places to ask where to go. I know, men, we've never, never done this. And then to be nostalgic for a few of us here, there was those handful of years a couple of decades back where we did this. So young folks, to explain this, there was a time when you could get a map on a computer, but nobody had smartphones, so you couldn't transfer it to a screen in your car, and you literally printed out sheets of paper for everywhere you wanted to go and brought them into the car with you, turn-by-turn directions. And boy, you had to be vigilant not to make a wrong turn, because if you made a wrong turn and got off the path, you were toast. There was no printout telling you how to get back. There was no GPS recalculating to show you the right way. Once you got off track from the eight and a half by 11 in your hand, you were in the wilderness. This verse is encouraging us to give careful thought to our directions, our path, each step, to stay on that straight and narrow path in line with God's plan. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. What is the event you should be avoiding? The place you know that will just provide temptation. Nothing wholesome. Those people who will just gossip or tell nasty jokes or propagate increasingly ill-informed conspiracy theories or party in a way that's not honoring to God. Stay away from the wrong places, even those places where it just looks wrong for you to be there as we're careful for the honor of our Lord to avoid even the appearance of evil. When we spend so much time looking at digital maps to know where to go, are you spending significant time understanding the best roadmap for life's decisions, the most reliable map, the Word? Do you regularly spend time in the Word of God, or is there an opportunity for a resolution this year to change that pattern? What excuse just popped into your head? Why not? The Bible is our roadmap, and it provides the clearest set of gauges and guidelines by which we can evaluate our heart condition and our actions before God and man. How could you know that you're progressing correctly in the journey if you aren't looking at the map? How can you know how your heart is running if you're not looking at the guidelines provided in Scripture for life? As you consider a course or an action, a path or direction, a significant one, Maybe a job or a spouse, your education, a difficult situation you've got to deal with this week. Ask yourself, is this path going to glorify God or me? Would this path lead me closer to sin? Would I be embarrassed to be seen here or caught in this? Will this path hinder my witness or damage my testimony? Could this path cause someone else to stumble spiritually? Does this path actually have the potential to lead someone to Christ. 
to draw to a close this morning, I don't think there's much in this passage. I don't think I've really said anything new. I don't think I've said anything you don't already know. This passage does not have a lot of surprises in it. The question this morning on the brink of a new year is what are you going to do with it? Derek Kidner, commentator, Old Testament theologian, said, a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. What I'm asking of you is that you spend a little time, a few minutes this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, while this is still fresh in your mind, and perform some simple introspection, a little honest self-analysis. Look at the gauges of your heart. What does my mouth want to say? What do my eyes want to see? Where do my feet want to walk? Where is my focus? Where is my time? Only you and the Lord know the deep impulses of your heart. We're really good at hiding these things from each other. So you need to be honest with yourself and identify warning signs. In which areas do you need to be most attentive in the year ahead? See, sinful desires are an invasive species. They are a weed. They are a spoonful of sewage seeping in. The smallest amount left to fester without being identified and called out can result in a gradual change of heart and mind. And eventually, you find yourself controlled by sin in a place where the old you would never have imagined you could end up. Only a little bit of anger can wreck a family. A little bit of bitterness can ruin your joyful outlook and your witness. A little bit of lust can lead to adultery. A little love of money, and you find yourself consumed by the inescapable pursuit of wealth. Do not believe Satan's most effective lies. I can control this. Don't worry, I'm only going this far. God made me this way with these feelings, so it must be okay. It's not hurting anyone. One spoonful of sewage ruins the glass. One rotten apple spoils the barrel. The invasive species of sin is insidious. 17 years ago, I was given the opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning here, and my sister Megan drew some pictures to illustrate a story. A couple of times now in those 17 years, I've been asked to speak, and for some reason, the same images always seem to fit the message. So I'm going to share them again. This is the third or fourth time, I think. Have any of you heard the saying, the camel's nose is under the tent? There once was a Bedouin man who lived in the desert with his camel. These are Megan's illustrations. He was a simple man and didn't have many possessions, but he did have a good tent that protected him from the harsh sun and the stinging sand of the desert. One day, as he was enjoying the shelter of his tent, his camel walked near and made a seemingly innocent request. Master, the sun is so hot, the sand is so dry, my delicate camel nose is at risk of chafing. Please might I just tuck my nose under the hem of your tent. The master thought for a moment and considered, what harm could there be in this small thing? And so he gave permission. The camel's nose was not large and the master hardly noticed any effect on his life. Not much time had passed before the camel spoke again. Master, now that I realize how much better my nose feels inside your wonderful tent, perhaps I could just slide up a bit further? You see, my neck, my neck is also so tender. And again, the master saw little harm and gave his permission. Well, master, the camel spoke a third time. 
My shoulders are still in the sun. Perhaps I could edge just a bit farther in. And a third time the master gave his consent, and so it progressed as the camel made one small move after another, gradually changing the master's life quite significantly. But the master did not take action to keep himself separate, and so the camel continued his advance until finally the tent no longer belonged to the master, for the camel's girth left no room for the Bedouin. As the master sat outside with the sun beating down on him, he wondered how he had ever let the situation get this far. Like the camel slowly worming his way in, sin just pokes its nose under our tent to begin with. If you're not watching the gauges, your mouth, your eyes, your feet, you would hardly notice until you're sitting in the sand in the blazing sun. Something that would have shocked you a couple of years ago doesn't feel like it has the same impact today. It's a loss of innocence, a loss of clarity. What we used to see as black and white now from time to time appears a bit gray. In contrast, King David writes in Psalm 112, verse 7, about a fixed heart, a steadfast heart. They will have no fear of bad news. Their, heart, their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. When your heart is focused on the right place, set in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Resolve today on the basics for the year ahead. I want to spend more time in prayer. I want to be more regular in reading my Bible. I want to have more conversations with people about Christ. And as for those of us who are parents or grandparents, this is a whole other sermon. We've got to guard our children's hearts, our great responsibility. Their little hearts are where much of the battle is won or lost. Teach the skills while they're young, right? Resolve to be watchful this year, brothers and sisters. Be honest with yourself. Ask a friend. Ask the Holy Spirit for discernment and help in reading your gauges, examining your mouth, your heart, your feet, to make sure that your heart is in a healthy place in the right relationship with the Lord. And if all of this, if you're hearing this for the first time, maybe you're visiting today, and you recognize that you're not perfect, that you fall short, that you fall short of the flawless standard and you need to get right with God and have your inner well, your heart washed clean. So you're now perfect in God's sight because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. I would love to talk with you after the service and talk about next steps together. Good news, guard your heart jealously, carefully, with vigilance this year. Everything else flows from it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for what you continue to do, Father. Use, we pray, your Holy Spirit in us to discern, help us to reflect on and to understand who, who we really are, what influences that you are letting take, uh, that, that we are letting take root, Father, that you can help us weed out. Help us in the year ahead, we pray, to guard our hearts, to maintain a, a purity as an act of obedience to you. We're so thankful that you, the death of your son washed us clean and we, there's no longer any condemnation. We have no fear of the future, Father, because of who you are and what you have done. 
In your son Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen.